0: This is David Duchovny, and you're listening to Booked. I like
1: the way I said, booked. Welcome to Booked, where two guys tell you about the books you're reading. I'm Rob Olson.
0: And I'm Livia Nutt, I'm sure a lot of you are excited to hear from Max Brooks. We are, too. But I'd like for you to take a moment, because you saw Max Brooks, you got real excited, but I'd like for you to go back on your phone or your app on your computer, however you're listening to this podcast, and just note that right before where it says Max Brooks says the number 500. Rob, would you care to explain to people what that 500 means?
1: Yeah, it means that this is our 500th episode of Booked. Uh, it's Which the episode number, yeah.
0: Fucking phenomenal. So congratulations, <laughs> sir. Happy 500th episode.
1: Yeah, happy 500. This is uh, it, it, it just total coincidence what the actual episode is about. Um, this just happened to be the timing of it. But yeah, this is very exciting. Five hundred. Not a lot of 500 episode weekly podcasts out there.
0: No, there aren't. And we'll talk more about that after the interview because we're really excited to bring you um, our guest. And as Rob said, coincidentally, for the 500th episode, but this is someone who Rob and I have known of and have been talking about for many, many years now. And it's Max Brooks. He's the author of World War Z, The Zombie Survival Guide, Minecraft, The Island, and Devolution, a first-hand account of the Rainier Sasquatch Massacre, which you can hop back an episode and listen to our review of if you are so inclined. His graphic novels include G.I. Joe Hearts and Minds, The Extinction Parade, Germ Warfare, A Graphic History, and The Harlem Hellfighters. Brooks holds dual fellowships at the Atlantic Council's Brent Scowcroft Center for Strategy and Security and the Modern War Institute at West Point.
1: Um, yeah like Livia said uh, in our previous episode we did a very favorable review of his new book Devolution which drops from the time we're recording this next Tuesday which is June 16th
0: and you could pre-order that while you listen to our interview with Max
2: Brooks
1: Max thanks so much for taking time to uh to join us and talk about your new book and then I'm sure other stuff we're very very happy to have you on
2: good to be here thanks guys
0: we like to give authors a chance to tell us about their um, most recent work, um, kind of in their own words. So would you tell our listeners a little bit about Devolution?
2: All right. Uh, my book, Devolution, begins with a very high-tech, high-end eco-community nestled in the Cascade Mountains. And these are not dirty, filthy hippies off the grid. They are the grid. Green Loop is, is the new Levittown where you can telecommute to work. And you can tap on your phone for fresh, direct, uh, drone-delivered groceries. And your home is a smart home. So anything that goes wrong, it sends a signal to handyman who will show up in an electric driverless van. It allows you to live with the comforts of Manhattan in the pristine wilderness. And it is working up until Mount Rainier erupts. And... It blows out in the direction of Seattle, not only cutting off Green Loop, but allowing them to be completely forgotten. And winter is coming. And these very highly paid, uh, highly educated David Sedaris fans don't know how to change a light bulb. And so they have to dig in with no tools and no skills and try to find a way to survive the winter. And that's not the worst of their problems, because the eruption has driven a pack of very large very hungry Sasquatch creatures out of their traditional foraging ground. And they need to stock up on calories too. And they come up against what is essentially a pen of sheep. So boiling down devolution into one sentence, it is Ira Glass and Fran Lebowitz versus Bigfoot.
1: Wow, that was amazing. Um, Uh, so talking about green loop, uh, in, in your acknowledgements at the end of the book, uh, it, it is mentioned that it was inspired by an actual community or communities. So what's your personal take on this type of living, uh, setup. And as far as the book specifically is concerned, do you consider it a kind of a cautionary tale of what could go wrong?
2: Uh, yeah, pretty much that's most things I write about are like that. Uh, I should say right now, Like, I'm not a Luddite. I'm all for technology. Um, but I think you have to build in safeguards. You have to be aware of what can go wrong, lest you have what I call a Hindenburg moment, where you have a disaster that is so horrific and so public, it wipes out an entire industry. Uh, I'm Because of my work in these think tanks, I'm sort of deeply immersed in, in the tech world. And I see these these sociopaths racing to create a world based on comfort, and not resilience and oh my god uh the hindenburg moments are waiting in the wings
1: so when reading the book one of the things that i i felt was like the way that um the people who were living in green loop like you're saying weren't prepared for even really just understanding the the general dangers of living out in in nature i felt like i identified a lot with that i've always lived in the suburbs of chicago and, um, I haven't had a lot of personal interaction with, with nature. So, uh, from, from my perspective, it, it felt really like, Hey, this is, that's me. That's what would happen if I was out there and, and oh, something yeah. like that happened.
2: <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, I, I, am a city boy. I've grown up my whole life in cities. <clears throat> and so I have a deep respect for the wilderness Ah, uh, because the wilderness doesn't care about my rules and my morality. Uh, when I when I, I go, I do a lot of hiking and a lot of camping, and I understand that I am a guest in nature's house. But a lot of my fellow urbanites don't understand that. And one of the inspirations for this book was the Grizzly Man, was Timothy Treadwell. Oh yeah, the story of a, a Venice Beach guy, probably could have been my neighbor, uh, who just took it upon himself to save the bears. You know, who would he go into the Alaska wilderness and he would break into the bear preserve and just film himself like David Attenborough. And he would name them like Mr. Chocolate and break every rule of nature because he had decided what the rules were going to be. He was special. And sure enough, he was eaten by a bear and. Because he was eaten by a bear, that bear was classified as a man-eater and then had to be put down. So, way to save the bear's, asshole. And I see that anthropomorphization a lot in urbanites. Uh, I have studied a lot, and that was what drove me to write Devolution.
0: I find that interesting. There's a character um, named Devet in your book who— um you know, there's, there's a situation and there's like a mountain lion, you know, and she's like, oh no, no, don't hurt it. And that's, you know, in my, again, I I've also grown up in in Chicago and in the suburbs and don't have a lot of exposure to nature, but you're right. That's one of the things that hit is that there are people who don't understand exactly what you said, that nature doesn't conform to your values. So you have to work with the values of, of nature, which is, you know, a, a great message. Um, but yeah, we both felt there was a little bit of a, cautionary tale in there that was more than um, how you would deal with Sasquatch, but certainly um, how your living choices can impact uh, <laughs> your ability to live, I guess,
2: for yeah, lack of a better term. You've sure. just got to be—you don't have to be paranoid. You don't have to hide out of the bed with a shotgun and and canned beans. Live your life, but live your life with open eyes. It's, And I'm very lucky that I grew up with uh, World War II Depression-era parents who were they had a, a rich, amazing, wonderful life, but they were always conscious of the, of the dangers. And even little things, like when I was a little boy in the store with my mom, I took out my wallet, started to count my money, and my mom smacked my hands and said, don't you ever count your money in public. Because if somebody sees what you have, somebody will try to take it. And my father always said to me, it's there's nothing wrong with making a fortune in america but don't drive your fortune past people who are starving and part of that is morality obviously he grew up in the depression but part of it is also if you flaunt it someone will try to take it so just be smart and be safe
1: it's great wisdom and um the the care so the character in devolution that St- sort of represents a little bit more practicality is the mustar Mustar yes. Yeah. yeah mustar um, and so, so that specific character i know you mentioned there was some uh some research involved in in her background and stuff but um i just want to say that like of all the characters in the book she ended up being one of my favorite because um she was that contrast to everybody who was not prepared for really anything and and she kind of went rambo and and save the day at least,
2: to a degree. So yeah. I really enjoyed that character. Well, well M- Mustard, she's she is uh, an artist, and and initially we see her as so, sort of flighty and weird, but she's an immigrant from a war torn country, so she knows how fast things can go south, and she's the one who ha- who steps up because she sees the warning signs, and she says, "Listen, you know, you you privileged soft." upper-class Americans really don't understand how dark the darkness can get. And we better start lighting some candles right now.
0: Yeah, she was great. <laughs> I'm going to apologize in advance. So I don't think we, we referred to the animals in our review at all as Sasquatch, because I think we both fell in love with the term Bigfoots for plural Bigfoot My creatures. So, so, um so the the Sasquatch or the Bigfoots that you depict um, seem very well researched, and and we both read and are familiar with World War Z, and we believe that a lot of research goes into what you do. So I'm gonna maybe ask about a little bit about the research, but more importantly, after spending so much time on that subject, what's your take on Sasquatch? Do you do you think do you think they're up around Green
2: Loop? Well, I can say this. Uh, I. I will believe in Sasquatch when I see physical evidence. I'm one of those few Americans left who still believes in science and facts. So show me hard, testable proof, and I'm with you 100%. But I will say there is no scientific reason that uh, a species of great ape could not exist in North America. Uh, especially in that area. I, I've been going up into that part of America for years, and I can tell you there's enough cover and there's enough food available. They could exist. It's not like the Loch Ness Monster, where in the 70s they thought it was a plesiosaur, until paleontologists were like, wait a minute, a plesiosaur is an air-breathing dinosaur. So you wouldn't be seeing it every couple of years. You'd be seeing it every couple of minutes. Uh Mm -hmm. And it's not like my favorite, one of my favorite horror movies ever, Them, about the giant ants. Uh, You can't have giant ants. Once an insect grows to a certain size, it can't get any more oxygen because it doesn't have lungs, And its exoskeleton would be too heavy for it to move. So science gets in your way. But a great ape living in North America? No reason it couldn't happen.
1: So that's one of the things that I appreciated about the way that you set up the Bigfoot Sasquatch uh, aspect of the book was that it was coming from the approach of science says it's possible. Um, you, you set like a good enough foundation where there's no reason why we wouldn't um, believe that it's possible.
2: Well, you know, when you talk about my research is <clears throat> I, I spend, I think, for every hour writing, maybe between 10 and 100 hours researching. Uh, because I I was inspired as a kid by Tom Clancy. And I loved the fact that when I put down his books, I felt educated as well as entertained. And also I trusted him. Uh, Reading a Tom Clancy book, I knew that he had done his homework. So when he described an Alpha-class submarine or a Pavlo helicopter or how the CIA uh, works, uh, I believed it. And so that level of trust, I have tried to build into all my stories, that even if it's a fictional threat, all the solutions to the problem are heavily researched and verified and real.
1: So I guess, and I think that you you mentioned a little bit, uh, I don't remember if it was in the af- uh, the acknowledgements or afterward, um, or kind of built built into the book a little bit, but um, where's the inspiration for Bigfoot uh, as, as the subject? Is that something that As a kid, you were fascinated by, or was there some other reason you decided to write about it?
2: I was terrified. Uh, I was (laughs) always terrified by Bigfoot. Uh, As a little kid, I grew up, uh, I'm 48, so I grew up in the late 70s, early 80s, uh, at a time when all these faux Bigfoot documentaries were coming out on TV, by the way. So as a little kid living in a post-World War II ranch-style home with glass walls outside trees rustling in the wind (laughs) at night, Uh, uh, watching a Bigfoot recreation of a hand smashing through the window, attacking someone watching TV, uh, I developed a very healthy phobia of Bigfoot.
0: All right. So Devolution, as well as World War Z, are, are both stories told in a, in a unique format. So when I say unique, at the time I read World War Z, and Rob and I have already discussed this, we, we both found it to be a very unique way to tell a story. So Devolution is in some way similar. So it's told through um, a couple of different mediums, right? So there's a journalistic style to it, and then there are inter- supportive interviews and stuff like that. What draws you... Or, or specifically drew you to those formats, as opposed to more of a standard story narrative?
2: I think for me, the story dictates how it must be told. Uh, World War Z, there, for me, I, there was no better way of describing the sheer size of the conflict. Uh, because one of the reasons I wrote World War Z was my frustration with most zombie stories that you have a global pandemic, but you're always focusing on this tiny little group. Mm. And that's like trying to learn about World War II by watching Saving Private Ryan. So I wanted to talk about the big picture. And fortunately, I had I had listened to, I don't want to say read because of my dyslexia, I listened to the audiobook of Studs Terkel's The Good War, which was an oral history of World War II survivors, participants from all around the world. And I thought that is the perfect format to tell this global zombie story. And with Devolution, I thought, what is a better way to basically turn Green Loop into the lost colony of Roanoke? Well, you find a journal, and a journal still leaves mystery. But a journal doesn't go far enough because once again, it's too narrow and there's too many questions. So I included interviews with people closely linked to uh, Kate Holland, who wrote the journal. So there's her brother uh, who has been trying to find her and then there's uh, Ranger Josephine Shell, who found the journal. And so between them, we get a broader perspective of what is Sasquatch? Where did it come from? Uh, why hasn't it been found? And I think that gives you a, a, a big picture.
1: One of the things that I thought was um obviously different between world war z and this is like you were saying the world war z book was the global perspective of what was going on whereas this was just uh a very small very intimate setting um so definitely different but um i think that was effective as well because as as time goes on like uh you you only have this little tiny group is your hope of of survival and And so uh, definitely a different, uh, I guess, scale, but uh, I think perfect for for the type of story you're trying to tell.
2: Uh, Yeah, I think that that's it's it's important to um, for me to get all sides. I wanted devolution obviously to be more intimate because you want to focus on the on the tiny details of survival. How do you survive in this little bedroom community when no food's getting in and you don't know how to fix the house? And you, will you plant a garden, but you have no seeds, you have no gardening tools, uh, all those little things. And then suddenly your physical defense becomes a priority. And you're living in a glass house with a burglar alarm that sends a signal to the cops who will never come. What do you do?
0: I want to chime in And, and I was going to earlier and I kind of, I don't know, I let it kind of slip past, but you you'd said that you, you always wanted to be kind of educated um, by your books, and, and Rob teases me mercilessly because the only way I learn anything is through fiction books because that's pretty much the only <laughs> type of reading I'm willing to do. Um, So, uh, yeah, so uh, a couple of things. Yes, all of that stuff was present and and very informative and educational. And I want to touch on something else you said. The difference between Devolution and and World War Z is that if you zoom out on Devolution, there's still a beauty in the fact that there is a major crisis going on. But that for this little group, that's not the biggest threat. And for me to be involved in a story, um, some of the things that are going on around outside the story can certainly make the story, the one that you're actually reading more interesting. So I want to commend you for that decision to have an eruption that, and, and you know, we get snippets of it right through radio reports uh, on what's going on in the rest of the world. But the fact that that's not the biggest threat to our protagonists, um, for me, is one of my favorite ways to enjoy a story.
2: You know, when I when I research, there's there's two different types that I do. and One of them is cosmetic research, uh, the names of things which doesn't really affect anything. I actually, when I do my first draft, I just put a, a group of X's in front of something because I know I'll just go back and I'll figure out, you know, w- what is the nickname for uh, for a, a Soviet-era fighter-bomber? Don't really need to know that at the moment. But the other kind of research really does affect the plot. And a lot of the research in Devolution, the reader will never see because I had to go very deep into the mechanics of the Mount Rainier eruption. And I had to speak to... Volcanologists at the USGS, and and figure out where would the eruption happen, where would the lahars, the boiling lava rivers or boiling mud rivers, where would they go, and that would determine where Green Loop would physically be, because I had to I had to map it out exactly. Then I had to physically go to to that area to prove that my characters couldn't just walk out. Uh, so my research has to be interviews book learning and it also has to be hands-on because i always live in terror someone's going to bust me and say well i live there and i can tell you right now they could have totally walked out to which if that ever happens i can tell them well i've been there too and i couldn't even walk in so um
1: this is something i don't think i've ever really thought to ask uh, an, an author about their work but your research sounds so so vast so i guess is that is that something that you enjoy doing. And um, the the question that popped in my head as you were explaining some of the research was, did these people who you're, you're doing, who are helping you, did they get a kick out of helping out with these types of books? It just seems like it would be so fun to have an author randomly come up and ask you about your area of expertise because they're going to work it into a book.
2: Well, well, sometimes sometimes they do, but a lot of times they don't know what I'm working on because I don't tell anybody what I'm working on. I just say, listen, I'm working on a working on a novel I've written these books so maybe they could figure it out on their own but I just tell them who I am what I'm working on or what I've done and I just say listen I'm, I'm writing a novel and I'd like to um, I would like to talk to you about this particular idea because also you don't want to turn people off you know I'm talking to serious scientists you say the word right. Bigfoot I mean that's a room clearer <laughs> uh, so the last thing I wanted was someone to be like listen I don't want my name associated with this so I just said I'm working on a novel that has the Mount Rainier eruption as a catalyst for the story. Could I talk to you about the Mount Rainier eruption? And you know uh, how, as a writer, I do things in drafts. I write things in drafts. Well, I also outline in drafts because draft one, I assumed that Rainier would just be another Mount St. Helens. That's not true at all. Uh it's two completely different volcanoes. So I had to go back and rewrite everything once I actually learned about the mechanics of Rainier.
0: That's so fascinating. And and I think to myself, um, we recently um, had Christopher Moore on and he talked about traveling to the places that that he writes about and some some of the things that wouldn't exist in his book if he didn't take that step. And he gave us some examples. And then I think... There's probably authors who never leave the dark little room that they're in where they're, you know, just cramped over a keyboard. And and I I mean, I, I guess what I want to say is thank you for for doing all of that. And I think that goes back to trust. So you can enjoy a story and learn from it. And you had mentioned it only just trusting the author. The one that always comes to mind for me is Dan Brown, who I think um, for the factual portions of his book, it, it appears pretty flawless and still manages to tell you kind of an interesting story around that. But one of the things that is really enjoyable is that you're reading something that 100% could happen versus you just kind of thinking it could happen. And I, I yeah. think there's a d- different feel to, to those books.
2: Yeah, there is. I mean, getting back to Clancy, he started writing, I believe, in in the response to Ian Fleming, where he basically took these these middle-aged white male psychosexual fantasy novels and threw them away and said, how does this stuff really work? Because Clancy never served. Clancy was just a wannabe and a nerd. And his fascination, his passion is what drove him. Uh, And that's kind of how I am. I, I'm afraid of these things and my research in a way sort of calms me down where the more I study crisis, the calmer I get because it's the ang- anxiety comes from staring into the abyss and not knowing what could go wrong. So the more I learn about it, the calmer I get.
0: All right, so you mentioned a little earlier dyslexia. Um, I imagine that that has to impact, Either the way you write, or I don't know if there's like there's there's two things here that I'm thinking and I'm trying to work this out in my head. Um, uh, Would impact your ability to write, um, but then also how you go about it. So if you wouldn't mind, would you tell us a little bit about what it's like writing with dyslexia? Uh,
2: Well, having dyslexia is not fun. Uh, It was not fun in school, especially in the early '80s when teachers thought I was lazy. And uh, I had to de- well, I had to develop a lot of coping mechanisms. I should say that my mother developed those co- coping mechanisms for me. Uh, my penmanship sucked, and my teachers would always be up my ass about my penmanship. But my mother said, "You know what? Penmanship is bullshit. It's it's a relic of the 19th century." And my mother somehow she understood computers are the way of the future, and she thought if you want to be a writer, you need to learn computers and you need to learn to type. So she put me in a typing class in the eighth grade. So that's a coping mechanism. Another one was audiobooks. I could not read. Uh, It would take me 10 times as long as anyone else. So I never would have gotten through school. So my mother went to the Braille Institute for the Blind, got all my books read onto audiobooks. So to this day, if I have to read serious texts, I have Audible. I listen to the book while I have a hard copy next to me so I can underline and then at the end of the process, I then have a, a, a annotated or an, a underlined book. So those are some of the things that I have to do. And as far as the marketing of the book, I'm very lucky in that I can't read a speech, I can't do book readings. People say, "Oh, you know, you know, read from your book." Can't do it. Can't read cue cards. Can't read from a speech. Can't read from a teleprompter, uh, which has closed a lot of doors but it also makes me a very natural public speaker if I know what I'm talking about. So that allowed me to build my career and my fan base by public speaking and shaking hands and taking pictures and doing Q and A's. And that's how I did it.
1: Wow, that's amazing because uh, in, in preparation for uh, talking to you, one of the things I did was to to watch some you know of your appearances on uh, different shows and stuff, and I think I saw um, you were talking to Colbert, I think, one time, and your answers seemed so well stated. And I and I thought to myself, man, this guy really is is incredibly well spoken. Um, and I never thought about why behind it, but I'm thinking maybe that has something to do with it.
2: Yeah, I mean, I just, I just had to work as a kid. I just had to work ten times as hard. I mean, you, when you, when you stand up in the fifth grade, and you have to read some speech about JFK, and you're stuttering, and all the kids are laughing at you. Uh, you realize that you have to work smarter and not just harder. So, learning how to prepare to speak in public was a very important tool for me to use, and my mother understood that too. So, thanks to all of her coping mechanisms, I can advance as a writer and also to promote
0: my own work so our original plan was not to mention your parents not for any other reason um then we want to talk to you as an author but you've mentioned your parents several times and i feel like at this point listeners are gonna be like do these guys not know who his parents are so ah. for for <laughs> listeners we should probably mention that, that you are the product of mel brookson and Anne bancroft Sam. um which is pretty amazing, and they sound like they were really down-to-earth people. I mean, just from the things you've said, they sound like they were terrific people.
2: You know, uh, I get—I I always get that question. You know, what was it like growing up with Mel Brooks? And you know, and, and I get it. I know what what people want. They want the fantasy. They want to believe that I lived in a Mel Brooks movie. Uh, that it was just <laughs> hilarious comedy all the way around, uh, or if it's some really creepy baby boomer they wanted to believe i lived in the graduate uh, but the truth is i grew up in an immigrant household where they were immigrants to this new one horse town called los angeles and all their celebrity friends were immigrants too because this was this was a very interesting time in hollywood where the studio system had collapsed so nobody was taking care of them and so they had to fend for themselves and so when then my parents and their friends would all get together for dinner or for tennis on Sunday afternoon. They talked about the practical details of life. You know, where do you find a good dentist? Where do you get your car repaired? Oh, my kid has something called dyslexia. What is a school that will allow me to accommodate him? These were the conversations that my parents had with Gene Wilder and Don Deloise and Carl Reiner and everyone famous of that generation. So I know that's a brutal disappointment to people who wanted me to talk about growing up in Blazing Saddles, but that was life.
0: See, and I, I love hearing that. Um, I, I grew up in an immigrant household, too. Um, and yeah, I, I mean, sometimes, you know, you, you think to yourself, uh, you um, depict people in the way that you see them and often when the when people are celebrities the way you see them is in you know blazing saddles or the graduate as you mentioned but that they're they're real people with real lives trying to um, do the best they can for them and their families and i love hearing that your childhood was um more normal than than the blazing saddle scenario but it's also really cool to hear that like gene wilder and dom de were hanging around also being very normal
2: yeah, I mean, when we when we think about you know what was Don Deluise like, I'm like, well, he was he was funny, but you know, David Deluise, who's my age, uh, we both had dyslexia, so we both struggled. We both got tested at the Marion Frostic Center, and we both talked about our accommodations, and and that was that was life. You know, I was very lucky that a very close family friend, Alan Alda, was my mentor for writing, but uh, this was not hanging out on the set of MASH. You know, Alan was a, a brutal taskmaster. Alan was not, uh, he did not spare my feelings. He would sit down with me with my little novellas in ninth grade and he would just tear into them about research and about dialogue and about taking things in drafts. And I couldn't have asked for a better teacher, but it was, I was not Tatum O'Neill.
1: Um I just want to say, going back to um, uh, the the ways that Um, like your mom found to help with the dyslexia and stuff that tons of, tons of props for, for that level of dedication to, uh, to helping you because it's, I know it's difficult. Like growing up, my brother had, I don't even know, it was ADD. Yeah. I guess that's what it was called back then. And it was a constant struggle just to get him kind of at the same level as, as, as the other kids were playing at. And it was very stressful and, and it wasn't that he was doing something wrong. It was just that he was different. They had to find a way to fit him. So, um, yeah, your story about the dyslexia really hits home because I've seen like what it is to try and overcome a disadvantage.
2: Oh yeah, I mean, and and if if it is not addressed, it is a disadvantage because we're our education system is still based on the Prussian method of uh, memorization and regurgitation, and that's it. There's no, yeah. there's no creativity. There's no critical thinking. It's the, It's the industrial revolution. And most kids are fine with that. But for the kids who aren't, you need to work smart. You need to find ways around, which is why I wrote the Minecraft book. Because when I saw my son playing Minecraft, I realized, oh, my God. This blows away the traditions of education because most video games, whether they know it or not, are still industrial revolution. It is, there's one way to solve a problem in the video game, you solve it, and then you go to the next level. You get bumped up. That's not how life works anymore. You have to be creative. Minecraft will give you a problem, like don't starve, but it will give you a hundred different ways to feed yourself and a hundred different ways to do those ways which is how life works, because now the Industrial Revolution is breaking down and we all need to be agile. So if we don't work smart instead of just working hard, we are going to be in a lot of trouble. And by the way, we should have known this back in the 90s when we saw the powerhouse of Japan totally crater because the Japanese worked harder than anybody but they were not innovators. They were copiers. They would take something someone else did and do it better, quicker, at a higher quality. And that worked. And then in the 1990s, they crashed into that. And they couldn't innovate their way out. And to this day, Japan has what's called the lost generation. Uh, and they I think they're working harder now than they did. But they're spinning their wheels.
0: When um, we were going through your bio for the review. For Devolution, um, I saw Minecraft: The Island, and I had to look it up. And I was like, "This is a novel about Minecraft." Now, uh, to be fair, I don't know a whole lot about Minecraft, but my first thought was, "How'd this guy write a novel about block, you know, uh, figures in a in a kind of cartoon world?" So I guess the question I have is, how did that differ from your, um, your original source material that you've written? What what was that like versus writing, say, World War Z or Devolution?
2: You know, it's funny because I write about very eclectic subjects, but it's all the exact same theme, which is adaptation. It's all about uh, an individual or a group or a country, a world, uh, coming up against a challenge in which the old ways of doing things do not work, and you have to adapt or die. No different with this one. Uh, But even with Minecraft, I had to play hundreds and hundreds of hours to gain the trust of the readers i needed these kids reading minecraft to know that i played the game just like them i knew exactly how the game worked and because i knew if i screwed up if i did something that you can't do in that game if i took liberties uh then i would be in a lot of trouble and so i had to be 100 percent sure of the world that i was writing about
0: and how did you find playing Minecraft? I, I've never played. I'm I'm open. I do a little play a little bit of video games, mostly you know Call of Duty stuff. But I, I'm I'm open to it. How would you find it?
2: I think it's great. It's so good. It is so smart. I think the only problem with Minecraft is it's it's not being marketed to its fullest potential. I think it is the best brain training I've ever seen in any video game. Wow. Uh, because it really does teach you creative solutions. I mean my character in Minecraft uh, spawns next to an island and is like Robinson Crusoe and has to figure out how to survive on the island. Well, the first time I ever played Minecraft, that's exactly what happened to me. I had to learn how to survive. And there isn't... I played Call of Duty too. And, you know, a lot of these first-person shooter games, they're very narrow. The weapons are there. The ammo's there. You just have to duck, dodge. It's all about reflexes. But it's not about being really that creative whereas in minecraft there's a million ways you could die and there's a million ways you can survive and figuring out your best way to survive is 100 different than somebody else's way and so that is that's what it was like so i i encourage everyone even grown-ups to play it because it is great brain training
1: that's awesome um i'm gonna I'm going to switch to a different topic and I'm going to be very honest with you before um, starting to prepare for this conversation. I wasn't super aware of your non fiction writing based uh, life. So the lecturer, I guess, aspect of your life is something that I'm not super aware of. So, uh, and you also said that you were doing work with think tanks. So a little broadsided by that one, but what, what's, what's that part of your life like?
2: I'm, on, I'm a senior non-resident fellow at two think tanks. One is a civilian uh, organization called the Atlantic Council's uh, Brent Scowcroft Center for Strategy and Security, and that's based in D.C. And the other one is strictly military. That is the Modern War Institute at West Point. Uh, in both my capacities for them, I study non-military threats that could become military. I mean, it's very much in my wheelhouse of figuring out what could go wrong. So I look at things that if left unattended to, be it food security, environmental, uh, economic, if we, if we take our eye off the ball, eventually it's going to crash and somebody's gonna pick up guns and then it will be a military issue. The other thing I do is I talk about communication and I talk about creativity. So I've lectured to the cadets on West, at West Point a lot about how best to communicate and also about how to think creatively Because if you want to talk about being trapped in the Prussian model, there's nobody more trapped than the U.S. military. Uh, We were so good at copying the Prussian way of war, we out-Prussianed the Prussians in World War I and World War II. The problem was we got stuck in that model, and we thought, yeah, this is how we like to fight. The problem is, the Vietnamese didn't give a shit about how we like to fight. (laughs) Neither do the Iraqis, neither do the Afghans. And so there needs to be an incredible dose of creative thinking in that. So I'm there to talk about the creative process. And sometimes it's not just about being creative. One of the things I really stress with them is championing creativity. And what I mean is, it's not enough for someone to have a good idea. If that good idea doesn't have cheerleaders and champions and people willing to stick their neck out, those ideas die. Because the military has a lot of really creative people. They're not robots. Uh, But if the system is set up to punish people who step out of line and speak up, no one's going to do that. So for example, one of my lectures, I talk about the M1 carbine, the rifle my dad carried in World War II, invented by a cop-killing bootlegger in prison. And he's not the hero of the story. The warden of the prison is the hero. He saw Marshall Williams sketching out this gun. He talked to him about it. He said, what what are you you doing, Williams? And then said, all right, I'm going to give you a chance to make a prototype of this rifle supervised in the prison workshop. And the prison board got wind of this and hauled up the warden and said, what the hell are you going to do if he escapes with the rifle you let him build? And the (laughs) warden said, I will serve out the rest of his sentence in his cell.
0: That's amazing. Wow. And would
2: you believe it? That is the story taught to me by my mother.
0: So it sounds like, so one of our questions was going to be how um, your other work informs your writing, but it sounds like it's all about adapting, right? It, I mean, I think this kind of goes yeah. back to, yep. So um, we just went through, um, uh, or are still going through, I guess, the, the, the tail end of a pandemic. So um, how have, how, how how, I'm sorry?
2: It ain't the tail end.
0: All I'm right. Sorry to say.
2: All right, let's talk about that.
0: I was going to ask how you're adapting during this, and then, of course, there was a, a viral video, your PSA, which was absolutely adorable. Um, but give us your thoughts on that, then.
2: Well, I can tell you that that this is not the end. This is not even the beginning of the end. And I'm not even sure, in the words of Winston Churchill, this is the end of the beginning. Because people are talking about a second wave. Well, we're not done with the first wave. The numbers are still going up. Yeah. And within about a week— we will probably match the amount of American dead uh, that was suffered in World War One. Just think about that for a minute. A hundred years ago, uh, about 116,000 Americans died in a world war. At this point, we're about to lose the same number without a shot being fired, that, which was perfectly preventable. My um, work with think tanks has allowed me to review the US government's master disaster plans, which by the way are not top secret. I have no security clearance. Anyone can look at it. It's called the National Response Framework. It's on FEMA's website. FEMA wants you as a citizen to study this. Uh, So we had a plan. We had a plan, we had the people ready to go. I've actually witnessed, not just disaster planning, but disaster training. I've witnessed war games for things like this. Uh, All the pieces were in place and we didn't pull the trigger.
0: Um, that's very frightening to hear, um, and and I'm not I'm not doubting you at all. Obviously, I hope the best for 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 our nation to um, to pull out of this. Um, but yeah, I, I think we're both a little a little shaken hearing someone put it quite that way.
2: I wish more people would, because yeah. as I've as I've been quoted recently saying, if I'm the smartest guy in the room, we are in big trouble. <laughs> all
0: right, let's wow. touch on. Let's touch on the PSA. So uh, in all fairness, I, I've, I've known of you, obviously, since World War Z, probably like week two that it hit the shelves however many years ago now. But it took Rob to point out to me that you were in, in the the PSA that that was seen uh, probably by everybody in the United States, at least, um, with your father. What what prompted you to do that?
2: Well, I, I think... Uh... This goes back to what I do for the military and what I do for these think tanks, which is talking about communication. How do you reach people? We used to be masters at that. Uh, In World War II, the United States had the greatest social public outreach program the world's ever seen. We got Hollywood on board, pop culture. We got the American public on board and we've totally lost that. And so here comes this massive pandemic. It's sweeping the globe. It is so stoppable. All you have to do is just stay home. Just don't go, just don't interact. We could knock this thing out. But how do you do it? Because what I've noticed in think tank world is that the great thinkers are not always great talkers. You know, they either ramble and, or go deep into minutia and put people to sleep, or they hit you over the head with it and lecture and wag their finger, which makes you defensive, or they scare the shit out of you and uh, you run away. So I thought, let's just make it personal. Let's just make it about a father and a son and make it funny. You know, if I give it to my dad, he gives it to Carl Reiner and Dick Van Dyke, and I've wiped (laughs) out a whole generation of comedians. So it's funny, but it's real. And so you have a chuckle. You get to see my dad. But at the same time, you think, oh, this is real. And here's what I can do about it
1: so uh i guess to put it in terms of the book that that brought us together today in the green loop of our pandemic you're you're the mustar uh you're or trying to be at least
2: well i'm certainly not as tough as she is uh, <laughs> but uh, i certainly i certainly follow her lead
1: for sure um and and as far as like prom- it's because i just brought up the promotion of the book um it, it, did you have to shift gears on what promotion oh my God. was going to look like? Oh yeah. And what is that? What's, what's that like for you?
2: Oh my God. I should, at this point, you and I should not be talking at this point. I should be on a plane coming home from the tail end of my world book tour. Yeah. Uh, a year ago, we had it all planned out. I was going to, I was going to travel the country, do a great book tour. We we're going to start in Seattle, obviously Bigfoot's backyard. And, Go across America, up to Canada, over to the UK, and then come back and do what it is I do really well, which is speak to crowds. Well, obviously, we couldn't do that. And to make matters even worse, we couldn't even release the book when it was supposed to be released last month because we couldn't finish the audiobook because we couldn't get people in the studio safely to record. So, want to talk about shifting gears, Random House had to mail out giant crates of sound equipment to everyone in the cast. And we all had to set up sound studios in our homes. So that was one way we had to adapt. Uh, another way is obviously this, this virtual book tour, which includes you guys, uh, just doing all this from my house. So there's a lot of adaptation that we have to do. Uh, but what else, what else can you do? I, 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 it's not just about me getting infected. The last thing I would want to do is draw a crowd and get people together and have them infect each other. I mean, my God, right. I might as well just do a mass shooting because it's essentially the same thing.
1: Um because you brought it up and and I don't want to I don't want to steer away from this but I saw announcements of the people who were the cast for your audiobook and it's amazing so I just want to make sure that like for anybody that's listening to the podcast um, if you are an audiobook person like just the people that are involved in the audiobook for this uh, seems like such a great amount of talent
2: Oh yeah I mean for me well this is another reason is that for some books the audiobook will come out later because the audiobook is an afterthought but for me Audiobooks books are obviously an incredibly important art form because of me, because I, I need them. I need them right. to survive. So when it comes time for me to produce an audiobook, it's all it's all hands on deck. So for this one, I mean, we've got Judy Greer, we've got Nathan Fillion, we've got Kate Mulgrew, we've got Jeff Daniels. I mean, we've thrown in a, a huge cast uh, because that's what I do. Uh, and I write them all personally. I write them all letters. I, I tell them why I think they would be perfect for this. Uh, because I'm asking them to, at least in the public eye, you certainly take a pay cut. I mean, my God, Judy Greer, she's our she's our main character. She has to yeah. do an incredible amount of work uh, for not a lot of money. Uh, in Minecraft, I asked. Well, I mean, I cheated. I got my old high school buddy Jack Black to read that. <laughs> uh, but also, I got Samira Wiley to do a female version, and I wrote to her and I asked her, and it got. I mean, World War Z the letters I had to write, Uh, the most powerful one was F. Murray Abraham, because he basically has said, I don't roll out of bed for an audiobook for anything less than a small fortune. Uh, Rightfully so. So I wrote him a letter and I said, you know, uh, Mr. Abraham, when I was a kid, my mother got me the audio version of Red Storm Rising, and you showed me that audiobooks could be an art form unto themselves. And I can't pay you a small fortune. But what I can do is is give you the chance to make a dyslexic kid's dream come true so that got him on board
1: Wow! yeah
2: <laughs> kudos wow.
0: kudos to you on that approach for sure um i recently started so my um my commute has uh has changed recently and i spent a lot more time in the car i finally started to embrace audiobooks um uh, which is something i haven't done and you and i are roughly the the same age so i i've listened to uh uh, three audiobooks in the last month. And before that, I think two my entire life. So it's definitely um, opened my eyes to a different way to take stories in, especially, and especially and so much depends on on who's who's reading it. So I mean, it's it's a your point is very valid about getting the right people um, to, to read the audiobooks. books. And, and I'm glad that that's something that's more widely available than when it used to be, I'd see them at the library when it was, um, you know, 18 cassettes and you'd have to carry this giant bag out to, to hear your, you know, seven hour audiobook or, or whatever. So I'm very excited about audible and, and some of the other apps that have come out that allow people to, to do that and, and spend their time with someone reading directly into their ears. It's, it's, uh, uh, I've embraced it. And I don't know if I've actually mentioned it on the podcast for people, because I've always said I like my books digital, um, not paper, digital, but not in not read to me. And, and I'm starting to come around on that.
2: You know, I, my attitude is however you take in information is okay. Uh, and we talked about before sort of how the story dictates the format of how I write. Uh, even in something like Harlem Hellfighters, uh, that's a visual story. It's the true story of African-American soldiers who fought for their country in World War I, were set up to fail, uh, but ended up coming home as one of the most decorated units in the entire U.S. Army. Well, because visual, because skin color is the most important factor in the story, uh, it's got to be a, a visual format. So I tried to do it as a movie and then nobody wanted it. And so then I did it as a graphic novel because I didn't want the reader to ever forget what color these guys were because they were never allowed to.
1: Wow. Yeah. Yeah, for sure.
0: Um, and I guess some um, will touch on the G.I. Joe stuff. As I mentioned, you and I are roughly um, the yeah. same age. Did did you did you grow up on the serialized G.I. Joe cartoons?
2: Oh, my God. I mean, of course I can. I have because of my dyslexia, I probably committed to memory every episode of the first G.I. Joe miniseries. Remember the mass device?
0: hmm. Yep.
2: Uh, I, oh my God, I love those. And even even later in life, uh, when they started to do the, the the weekly show, I mean, now we sort of laugh about it. You know, I don't know if they were intending to be racist having roadblock rhyme his words.
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: But I've always loved GI Joe. And then when they asked me to write for them, I said, you know what? I have to do what I always do, which is. Ask the simple question, what if this was real? What if zombies were real? Uh, what if Bigfoot is real? Well, what this was, what if G.I. Joe was a real unit in the United States Army? Who would these people be? What if Cobra was a real terrorist organization? How would it be organized and what would be their motivations? So that's why I wrote G.I. Joe Hearts and Minds, which is the backstory of these ten characters.
0: I um, I would get up early in the morning, so that the only way that Uh, G.I. Joe was available to me when I was a kid was the Bozo Show, which I believe was a regional thing. I'm not sure if that was a national thing.
2: We didn't have that in L.A.,
0: (laughs) but um, they would take a half hour, which I guess would be a 20 minute episode. Right. If you took the commercials out and it would just be five days, you'd have to watch Monday through Friday. And I could tell you it was at like 640 a.m. Like If I turned on the TV right around there, I would be able to catch the next five minutes (laughs) of the episode. And I would do this basically year round. They would it. it would be G.I. Joe, and then they'd go Transformers sometimes. I wasn't quite as big a fan of the Transformers. But um, I had to imagine that it had to be pretty cool for you to be able to revisit something that, uh, it, you know, for me, it was kind of a formative part of childhood. And I imagine for you, kind of the same thing.
2: Oh, yeah. and And going on to study war and study the military, I was able to bring all my research in and make it as realistic as possible. So all these characters uh, have real motivations, and and I wanted to sort of turn a few things upside down. You know, I was very proud of what I did with Spirit, because it is a little stereotypical to have the Native American as the tracker. It's like, well, mm-hmm. oh, come on. But what if he what if he was a naturally good tracker and had nothing to do with his heritage? So I made him, uh, I made him a Southwest Native American whose family have always been urbanites going back a 1,000 years. The reason he's a good tracker is because he has a sensory integration disorder, which is actually a very real condition, where he, the human brain is not able to prioritize what sense they take in. So you just get bombarded. And I know a lot of people, I think I probably have a little bit of that undiagnosed. But you put him out in the wilderness, when the white noise fades, he's able to see things and focus things that other people are not. And it has zero to do with his background.
1: That's amazing. I love love how thoughtful, um, how much thought you can put into something that most people would just think GI Joe and not really consider, like the background of of the things. But um, it's great that you you put so much thought even into that. Uh,
2: You know, I, I either care, as my wife always says, I either care about something a lot or not at all. You know, the things I'm into, I'm really, really into. And the things I'm not into, I don't waste a second of my very short life on. And so that's why when I write about something, it's something I've thought about a lot.
1: So, uh, speaking of stuff that you're into, we, we've, we've done a a, a pretty broad tour of, of things that you've been involved in and, um, I just want to give you the opportunity before we start to wrap things up. Is there anything else that, that you'd like to talk about or, or something that's happening now you'd like to promote that we, we didn't bring up already?
2: Uh, well, I mean, we've talked about, we talked about devolution obviously, and we've talked about even, I think Harlem Hellfighters, which, uh, I never, I, I, I keep waiting, hoping for the day when Harlem Hellfighters will become irrelevant. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but I will, I will say this, this is a public service announcement. Um, Victory gardeners, listen folks, uh, we're not out of this pandemic yet. And the second wave is obviously gonna come. And when the flu hits, if we don't have a vaccine for this, it's gonna be a very dark winter. If the stores close, and if you're thinking about gardening, uh, even in, even inside, think about exactly what you wanna grow because I'm a huge gardener. That's my, that's my hobby. My mother used to be a huge gardener. Uh, And that's how I've been keeping my family fed. But it's very important to think about what to grow. Don't grow anything that you can scrub or really clean or cook, because you can get that from the store. So for us, we have been growing a lot of leafy greens, you know, lettuce and and kale and spinach and chard, because you can't really scrub that. And you can't cook it, I mean, the charge you could, but lettuce, you, can, you don't really want to cook lettuce if you want a salad. So if you've got a little spot of dirt and you like to grow things in it, think about the things you really can't get from the store. You know, don't grow wheat. Uh, don't grow sugarcane, <laughs> which I have done.
0: All right. That's not exactly what we we're expecting. But do you have a resource that you could point people to? Like if I wanted to know about more about this, is there is there a website or a specific um, author or set of books or whatever that we should be looking to for that information.
2: Well, you know, it's funny. I kind of taught myself to garden and my mom sort of taught me. uh, So that was it. Uh, But I will say for, for pandemic survival tips, uh, I went to a guy that I've always really admired, which is Les Stroud survivor survivor man. I don't know if you've heard of him.
1: Oh yeah. I was watching some stuff. uh, YouTube videos. Yeah. He's the, he's the man.
2: I mean, for anyone listening to this podcast who doesn't know who Les Strat is, he started the wilderness survival reality show craze, but he was the only guy who really did it. Right. He was the only guy who actually went into the wilderness by himself with just his camera equipment and tried to film himself surviving in harsh conditions. And sometimes he just couldn't do it. Sometimes he said, this is too hard. I'm going to die. And part of survival is knowing when to quit. And we talk about trust. Watching that made me trust him, as opposed to some of the other dancing monkeys and frauds, who you know have a camera crew and are taking unnecessary risks because they know they can be choppered out at a moment's notice. Uh, So I've always trusted Les Stroud. And I'll say with Devolution, uh, I was terrified to ask him for a blurb to blurb the book. Because God forbid, what if he hated it? It was like Harlem Hellfighters. I asked Spike Lee for a blurb and I thought, oh God, what if he hates it? But Les, thank God, not only loved it, not only gave me a blurb, but uh, autographed one of his custom-made knives for me. So very happy about that.
0: Wow. it's very cool. Well, Max, thank you for taking the time to talk to us about Devolution and the 75 other things I think we <laughs> talked about. It was fascinating. Thank you.
2: Uh, thanks, guys. Thanks for taking the time. Be safe out there.
1: Okay, once again, awesome that we got a chance to talk to to Max Brooks, not only about devolution, which we both love, but um, a, a variety of topics. that was uh, that was a conversation that took us in directions um, that I wasn't expecting, but it was it was awesome. I can't
0: think of too many better ways to do a 500th episode. So big thanks to Max Brooks for giving us um, uh, quite a bit of his time and this wide variety of knowledge. I I think back, like we've had interviews where we've stayed totally on the topic of just storytelling, writing and and stuff. And then every now and then you get one that I I don't feel like it got away from us, but it's definitely not what we're expecting, which is absolutely tremendous.
1: Yeah. Um, So. Like you said, awesome way to do 500. Um, who are we going to get for a 1,000th episode? I don't want to
0: make any predictions, but I feel like by episode 1,000, there won't be anybody we still really want to talk to. Um,
1: it's going to be a while. <laughs> yeah. Livius um, is going to be in a home at that
0: point. Here's what I do want to say. Um, I'm very excited. Um, thank you um, to you, Rob, for uh, for for doing all the work you do for these 500 episodes, nine ish years at this point um thanks to the listeners who have been around to listen um and support us through through part of or in some cases all of the 500 episodes so big thanks to you guys without you guys um we'd probably still be doing this we'd probably just be a little less enthusiastic about it
1: yeah a little sadder about it yeah um that's pretty much all we got for this episode. Uh, like we said in previous episodes, coming up, the next book you're going to get from us is uh, the Touch the Night book by Max Booth the third, And we're probably going to have him on to round out our author's names Max um, interview series <laughs> for the Guinness Book of World Records. And someone brought it up. Not only is it the third Max that we will have interviewed, but they all have names that start with B, last names that start with B. So Max Berry, Max Brooks, Max Booth they
0: sure do i don't know if i don't know if guinness is going to appreciate that as much as as the other thing but we're we're going to roll it up to them and, and and see what comes out and who knows maybe by next episode we'll have the results of the this is horror awards too which we'll either talk about or ignore completely depending on how that goes
1: yeah yeah for sure um well i'm ready to i'm ready to pick it uh i've got uh, recent events have got my protest blood boiling a little bit so um <laughs> No, we're f- going to
0: do it virtually like everything else though it's just going to be us in front of our skype cameras holding up signs denouncing this is horror for uh <laughs> voting inaccuracies
1: yeah i'm going to be blocked on skype for the first time from uh, michael david wilson he won't take <laughs> so- my uh, distance protests <laughs>
0: yeah so you'll want to make sure to come back for all of that um uh, as always thanks for listening i'm Livia Snudden.
1: and i'm rob olson keep reading